Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisha Mazuz. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Holly Bird, who is a recruitment manager at Barrington James. Holly started her recruitment career six years ago and has actively been recruiting within the life sciences space. She has successfully accelerated her recruitment career in the last six years as she has gone from being a recruitment consultant to senior consultant. And in the last three years, she's been a recruitment manager. And she's now currently responsible for a team of seven consultants that she actively supports and develops, whilst also maintaining her own performance as well. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lovely intro. I'm looking forward to it. So where we always like to start is the million pound question. In your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? For me, I would say there's one clear characteristic or trait that within my career has been really important and I think based on the team around me has been really important and that is just resilience. Recruitment is so much harder than you think it's going to be until you get into it. During my interview process I was told recruitment is so hard, it's going to be so hard Holly, you don't understand. Whatever you think it is, double it, it's way harder. And I was (laughs) like yeah, 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 I'll be fine, like been okay in the past and then you get in and it is like being punched in the face consistently for six years yeah, yeah. so much rejection so much up and down um yeah. that it takes a lot of resilience to to pick yourself back up again and and get going on things so for me that is the biggest characteristic I yeah. think as well as that things as basic as it sounds but like hard work and just self-belief mm there's gonna be a lot of people that tell you that you can't do it or that you won't be any good at it. And you have to know in yourself that you will be. And I think we'll probably get onto it later, but that was probably one of the biggest challenges that I had personally when I first joined recruitment was that self-belief and that confidence element of it. Yeah, we're we're definitely gonna unpack that because I think that is really common in interviewing people. So very quickly, obviously you hear resilience a lot, don't you? Obviously, so I guess just curious to sort of zoom in on this a second. Obviously, you've now obviously been in recruitment for like six and a bit uh, years and you've obviously had these, this probably conversation all the time with the less experienced people saying it's going to be harder, all that. So do you think we can like make that resilience muscle stronger or is it something that like we already have or I don't know? What, what do you think about that? I personally think that people can build resilience. I think that there are yeah. a lot of people that are naturally quite resilient, whether they've had a tough upbringing or challenges that they've had to overcome in their life that have made them resilient. But I do think that people can become more resilient as they are given more challenges. And I think actually an industry like recruitment is the right type of area to build resilience in your character because it is so challenging in, in so many different ways that you have to become adaptable. And a lot of people say within recruitment that it is sink or swim. And It is to a degree, but I do think that if you put the right kind of steps in place, you are able to build resilience and you are able to build the character that it takes to be successful in recruitment. Yeah, I love that. Let's just talk about this for a sec, because I I think it'd be really useful for people. So, and I'm just always interested to hear other people's thoughts on that. So thinking about, I know you were saying before we started this, that a big part of your career has been developing and supporting other people. So I just feel like you're, you're in a good position I guess, to talk about this, because you would have had to articulate this or help people with this. So how, what are some of the things that, I don't know, people can do listening to this to, that could give them a better chance of cultivating more resilience out of interest? Is it when things, I don't know, when things do go wrong, you're encouraging people to ask better questions about it? Or are you trying to encourage them to look at what they learned rather than like just focus on what went wrong? I don't know, what are some of the things that come up for you when we think about how helping people cultivate more resilience yeah it's an interesting question I think that something that I work on a lot with my team is how they analyze their own performance and whether that is as small as looking at one individual call and the areas in which they could improve it or if you look at a six-month period for example as as to where they were and where they've got to now but I think a really key skill as a recruiter is being quite analytical of your own performance and being able to pinpoint areas in which weren't bad but maybe didn't go as well as you would have wanted them to and how you would then do that different I think that a really important part of that is actually the follow-through with that so you've identified areas that 
could have gone better in a conversation, implement that on the next call. Don't wait and try yeah. it in a week's time because by that time you've lost the impact of how you felt about listening back to that part of it. That's really key for me is just making sure that people really understand the themselves and their strengths and their weaknesses and how they can improve on that. But as well as that, I think one of the main pieces of advice that I always give my team is just to keep going. I know it sounds so basic and so kind of cliche, but it's really easy to get bogged down in the mistakes and what's gone wrong and, and why it's not going well. But actually, if you just keep going, time is, is a massive healer, I guess, in a way. Yeah, of course and, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the more time you give yourself, the better you will become naturally. But if you put loads of pressure on yourself to become the best recruiter in six weeks, it's, it's unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. So I think what I take from that for people is what you're doing as a manager, as a leader, is really trying to cultivate self-awareness, basically. Because not, not everyone will maybe not so some people might be really worried to look at what they're not good at and stuff so actually you're going look this isn't about just looking at what's bad it's like okay let's identify some areas that maybe you can improve and then that's follow through and do that's so a cultivating self-awareness and then the other thing as well which i think sometimes people could probably do more of because they like end up suffering in silence or just put such big expectations on themselves that they don't speak to other people and find out that holly in her first year had the same challenges and I'm really open with my team or anyone that asks me about how I started out in recruitment and what it was like for me in the beginning because it definitely wasn't easy and I think sharing that experience makes you slightly more relatable to people that aren't necessarily doing as, as well as they thought they might be in their first one two three years whatever it might be and um, yeah I guess my character is it's slightly different. I, If you ask me what my weaknesses are, I could give you a really long list. If you ask me what my strengths are, I'd yeah. probably have one or two. So that just came from yeah. my own personality going into recruitment that made me overly self-analytical and mm. very critical of what I was doing. So I try and pass that down, but in a much more structured way for other people yeah, yeah. so it doesn't become like that constant um, overthinking, that I guess. Yeah. So let's let's just think about for a second before we start talking about your journey with leadership, how you improved in areas and uh, all this. So like, how would you describe your first year then in recruitment? Like, as you said, it was interviewed as like double how hard do you think it would be and all that. Like, how would you describe it looking back? I don't want to scare people off, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think it was... It was just a realisation that I think the jobs that I'd had before were jobs. I would go to work, I would do my work and I would come home and that was it. And I didn't really have yeah. to worry about it after that. It was as simple as the nine to five was what you were doing. Yeah, clock in, clock out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And recruitment is more of an investment in yourself. It's an investment in a in a career and it's kind of like you live and breathe that role. It doesn't stop when you go home. It's It's constant and you really have to make a lot of sacrifices and put a lot of time and dedication in, into being where you want to be. And I think that was probably the biggest journey for me initially was the change of, I don't just leave at five o'clock and it's done for the day. This is a continuous development, yeah. a continuous learning. Um, I really struggled in my first, maybe even two years, if I'm completely honest, of recruitment. I think a lot of that came down to my own confidence in myself, believing that I was going to be what I thought I might have the potential to be. And that held me back in areas like business development and just overall progression, I guess, in, in terms of like the people around me knew that they could do it and they knew where they wanted to get to and they were really, really strong-minded in that. And I think that self-belief that I was lacking did hold me back in the first couple of years. I was relatively young. I was like 21 when I joined. It's just still, it's still like working out who Holly Bird is and like on that, your own personal journey as well. Definitely. And I've grown up massively at Barrington James and I've grown up with Barrington James, which is a really interesting journey to take. Um, <laughs> so if you don't mind, let's just sort of unpack this a bit then. I recently recorded like a um, early on in recruitment series where basically I interviewed like 10 recruiters that are sort of in their sort of first year or first two years. And th this was like one of the common things that came out of it. And I, I definitely struggle with it as well. Part of that self-belief, self-doubt and like that confidence. And I'm sure if I was to ask you now, like what what's one of the like things that you've got out of recruitment that you least expected, you'll probably say to me confident, like I'm more confident. Definitely. Is that fair? Yeah, because that comes up a lot. It's really weird, isn't it? That 
at the beginning you might lack it, but then actually it's one of the things that it actually gives you. So you have to go on this whole journey with it. So obviously keen to talk about how you felt like you built up that self-belief and, and those things, but just describe it to us. Like just cause I think that's what will be relatable for people. Like in terms of Holly being someone that maybe didn't have the self-belief that you do now, like how did that show up in the day to day? Was it, I don't know, did you didn't think you was going to hit your targets? Did you sort of, I don't know, worry of the outcome of like your BD? I don't know. Well, how did it show up out of interest in terms of the, being in the job? I think the main part of it was the business development side of the role. Okay. Um, I felt quite comfortable talking to candidates. I had, I was good at rapport building because I'd always done customer facing roles in, in previous jobs. Yeah. So the customer service element of it was kind of there with my profile, but it was the business development area that I was lacking in. And I think what I found difficult was giving myself the credibility to speak to people that were 10, mm. 15, 20 years into their career and telling them that I could help them with something. And that to yeah. me, I think I didn't have that confidence that I knew enough about what I was doing to really that do that sense. well, do that side of the role well. When I joined recruitment, I don't know, <laughs> this is a, a random story, <laughs> but when I left my previous company, the head of sales pulled me into his office and was like, just want to make sure you're 100% sure because I think you're going to hate recruitment. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to be good at it. You're too nice. They're going to make you do all sorts of things. You, nice. you won't be good at it. And I think that in my head, I was like, how dare you? you? I will show yeah, you yeah. that I can be good oh, at right, it. right, okay. And I think over the first two years, I was then like, oh God, I'm not going to be able to prove him wrong. And that's mm. going to wind me up even more than not being good at it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So um, that was like a really okay. driving factor for me. I really hate when people underestimate me and trying to prove people wrong became a real part of my character throughout my recruitment career. Yeah. No, yeah, good. What you said is the most common thing, basically. So like I've, I've mentioned this before, a bit of a soundbite that I got from one of those conversations that I just mentioned was this guy graduated in the last 12 months. And basically he was like, I went from like, studying in the library to like talking to MDs and CEOs and owners of companies, I was like, fucking hell, how the hell did I get it basically? Like how, how am I to be having these conversations with these people? So I guess, why don't we just talk about that for a sec? Cause I feel like surely this is probably something you have to help people actively overcome now. How would you encourage people to reframe that self dialogue then of like, oh, like who am I to call this person or I'm not even like worth their time, like they're going to be too busy for me. I don't know. How can we start like reframing it and how can we start thinking about it in a different way so then we do have more confidence and sort of go into that call going, no, this person should be talking to me and I am on their level and yeah. I think one of the biggest turning points for me from, from a BD perspective was I, I stopped trying to be someone else and I started being myself when I was talking to people. Nice. I think I had told myself that I needed to be really experienced, really professional, really like knowing absolutely everything there was to know about the world completely when I was speaking <laughs> to these people. And actually when I realized that they are just normal human beings and they are just people like your family members, your friends, people that you bump into yeah. in the shops. They're just normal people. And actually what you're bringing to them is something that I believe I can help their business. This mm. candidate that I'm pitching to you, I've researched your company. I've looked at your team structure. I know that this person could potentially add value if you have the scope to take them on. So it was really about the understanding the worth of what I was offering them and knowing that I was doing my job well enough to have something that would be of, of value to them. And I actually think as well, going and meeting people face to face was such a big turning point for me because I think when you call someone on the phone, you build a picture in your own imagination of what this person <laughs> looks like. And to me, they were yeah. sat on five stools with a huge <laughs> desk and were like super scary. And I was calling them like with my little phone, like, oh, hi, can I talk to you? And actually when you go and meet them, they're so down to earth, they're so friendly, they're so open, they're so like want to talk to you that it really reassured me that regardless of whether I was on the phone or speaking to them face to face, they were still yeah. just people. And I think when I started being myself and trying to, show them my personality and how I do things and what my process is, I was a lot more successful in BD. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. I think, yeah, what, what I hear a lot, and I think, let me know if you agree with this, but I think sometimes, particularly early on, you can get caught up in thinking that, as you said, like you're not as competent as they are or they know more than you do. But actually what sort of 
recruiters need to re- remember, you need to try and remember those early days is that you're never going to be as competent as these people. Like you don't get paid to do what they do and you're never going to be as credible, whatever they are, but you are 1000% the right person that you should be speaking to when it comes to talent, hiring, market insight, what's going on. And you can be an expert in that. And that's what you should own. And look, you can go, Hey, Holly, look, I don't know what you're talking about there, but let me go find and find out and I'll get that information. So I think sometimes people think that they have to be as knowledgeable as the person that they're calling, but actually you're never going to be as knowledgeable as that person. You're going to be like, you're as knowledgeable. It's in knowledgeable in the recruitment side and the insight. And you speak to so many different people like them. That's the thing that you can be an expert in. This podcast is proudly partnered with Vincere, who are more than just a recruitment CRM. They are the recruitment operating system. Now, I can continue to tell you how great this product is and how great Vincere's operating system is, but I think what's always best is to hear from Vincere's customers on how it's impacted their recruitment business. So here's a very quick snippet from a recent conversation we had on this podcast with Steve Thompson from Forward Roll, who spoke about how Vincere has enabled to grow his recruitment business. And if you want a no pressure demo on Vincere, how it could impact your recruitment business, then make sure that you use the link in the show notes. And because you listen to this podcast, you will get exclusive savings. If you haven't checked it out already, make sure you do. Let's have a listen to what Steve had to say. We were the first medium-sized customer of Vincere a couple of years ago and did a lot of work with them on their product roadmap for the UK. Um, got a really lovely partnership with, with them as a business. We chose it because it's an incredibly intuitive tool. Um, it's incredibly powerful and, and that's really weaponized our staff, I think. Um, so yeah, Vincere is I think it's definitely helped with our, with our growth. Yeah, I completely agree with that, actually. And, and I see that a lot in the new people that join my team is what I tell them is you are a specialist in recruitment. You aren't a specialist yeah. in market access, for example. If there's something that they're talking about that you don't understand, that's because you didn't go to university to do a degree in health economics and then have worked mm. in a health economics position for five years. So I wouldn't expect for you to know the intricities of how you build a model, for example, which is, is something that yeah. you'll be doing. Your job is to be a specialist in how to recruit someone. And that's what you offer. That's what you can bring yeah. to the table. So as long as you fine tune your your own skills as a recruiter, you are of value to these people because they don't have the scope, they don't have the exposure that we have as recruiters necessarily themselves. And that's what they need us for. So it's about like building your own network, your own knowledge and your own understanding, not necessarily of how to become a technical health economist, but how to become a really good recruiter and how to add value to to a recruitment process for someone. Yeah. And that's the mindset shift, I think, because you can get caught up in that, can't you? And I think what, what I was remind people is like don't forget how many market access professionals you speak to on a daily basis compared to a market access professional there's a good chance that you probably speak to double triple like 10x the amount of people that they do so the value that you have is enormous because you're speaking to people like them every single day and you can pick up different insights pick up different challenges that people are facing and it's that knowledge and information that you can then share that they never would have been able to have access to as well as all the recruitment stuff okay cool let's sort of take a bit of a segue then so obviously being really open honest with us in terms of like your journey with bd get building up confidence all of that you then went into like a more of a senior con position right and then obviously am i right in thinking obviously talking a bit about this so you then ended up basically developing and heading up a bit of a delivery team is that right So when I was a senior consultant, we had an opportunity internally to run a 180 model. And it was something that we'd done previously, but we kind of reworked it and and tried a new way of doing things. What I'd always been much better at was the candidate side of things up until that point. So it made a lot of sense for me to then train the 180 consultants on process management on qualifications on timers all of those kinds of things I was really good at is just sharing that knowledge that they could then do that as well and then from there that was a natural progression into running our academy which was a 360 training academy and I would say that actually really did help me develop 
myself on, on, a, on a 360 scope because when you start to teach someone how to do it you're reminding yourself constantly of what is best practice of how you would do that mm. whereas when you're doing it every day I think sometimes you lose a little bit of that because you're not constantly reminded of what is the absolute right way to do things you yeah, kind of develop yeah, of your own style which is good but having to teach people on it was really a way that helped me then develop myself as well yeah I love that so if it's okay with you, let's just let's just have a bit of a deep dive into the candidate side then. Just because I don't know about you, but what I continue to hear at the moment is obviously biggest challenges for recruiters right now is they've got live jobs coming out of their ears, but not enough candidates to like fill them. And then also the actual management piece. A lot of recruiters are sharing with me that like it, like candidates are just really quite fickle right now. Like they may like normally they might have two offers on the table, but now they've got maybe four or five. Yeah, just obviously the candidate management and that process piece. Where do you think most recruiters go wrong on the candidate management side out of interest like where do you think sometimes people maybe just have a bit of a stumbling block which means it shows up later on when the counteroffer gets accepted or the deal falls free in your opinion what, what are the common things that can prevent the outcome they're hoping for I think the fundamental thing is actually listening to what your candidate is saying um, I think a lot of people hear what they want to hear in a sentence mm. rather than hearing what a candidate is actually telling you. And I think when you're quite early on in your career and you don't want to hear them tell you that your <laughs> role is not, the, not their favourite position and you don't want to hear that the commute is longer than they ideally wanted and you don't want to hear that ideally they wanted remote and this opportunity isn't really remote what you want to hear is this ticks every single box for me and I'm definitely going to take your job there's not going to be any issues so I think listening for points in the conversation where the candidate isn't necessarily saying I won't take the job but they're giving you an indicator that it's not 100% at the moment exactly what they thought or, or what they wanted it to be and I think follow on from that is asking difficult questions and being prepared to hear answers that you don't want to hear. Because ultimately, if your candidate's going to pull out of the process for something that they knew from the beginning, it's better that they pull out at the first stage than they pull out at offer stage. Because yeah. by that point, you've got five backup candidates. They're in love with two of them, and they're probably going to offer at least one, if not two of them. So you're in a much better position to be able to cover it. Whereas if you've put your head in your sand for the whole process and just kind of fingers crossed, hope for the best, let's see what happens. The chances are you're going to get to the end and you're going to be disappointed. So I'd say from a process management perspective, motivations are so important to really understand why your candidate is in the situation that they're in and why they would even consider looking at a new position and revisiting that throughout the process because they don't always stay the same. Someone's motivations in stage one might be very different two weeks later when their family circumstances have changed or they've decided to move house or they've they've received an internal promotion or, or whatever it might be. It's so mm. important to keep revisiting and just keep that consistency throughout. Yeah. No, great. But yeah, I always remember it would have been advice when I was in the company I worked for in recruitment, but it was like what you just said, like be really willing to ask the questions that you don't want to hear the answer to. I think that's such good advice because as you said like even obviously you can get a bit complacent with it can't you but you can just because like you might be speaking to so many candidates every day you're just always trying to look out for the key things that you want to hear and what you want to find okay so out of interest just what are practical ways that we can actually revisit these motivations and is it is just as simple as like relaying what they said to you is it just like hey holly look so how are you feeling i know when we first spoke you said that this is really important to you. Is this still important? I don't know, like how are some of the ways that we can revisit that just out of interest? Yeah, I think one of the main things that I drill down with my team and that I still do myself is it's the first conversation I have with my candidates at any stage in the process is what's changed since the last conversation that we had? And that will always oh, be my question. first question and that will be, that could relate to anything that could relate to their personal circumstances, their work circumstances, the interview process. It's just about understanding from their perspective, from two time points where we've got to. And then additionally to that, I think when we're discussing maybe interview feedback is relating what they're saying back to what they've told me their motivations are. So if, for example, they're saying really love the, the team culture, I felt like I had a good connection with them you would respond back saying, okay, on our first conversation, you told me that one of the most important things to you was to find a culture that were supportive, that invested in training and development, and yeah. that would support you in your development. How do you think what they've told you matches up with that? 
Yeah. And then what we can figure out from that is if we do that with all of their motivations that they've given us, we've got a good idea and we're reinforcing to the candidate that actually this does suit very well what they initially wanted. Yeah. No, I think that's great. So basically it all stems from if you listen to this right now and you may have had a few dropouts or like, I think firstly, let's just accept that sometimes there will be things that you can't control and, and things will happen. But I think it, this all stems from that initial call or that candidate briefing call of like really digging in, into like, what are your motivations, Holly? And why are you potentially open to the right opportunity, whatever? And when, once you've really worked hard on getting that information, then it just helps throughout the whole process and with, in ways that you just mentioned. Okay, so on this then, let's just, just focus on this um, a bit more. What about counter offers? What sort of comes up for you when we think about how, what can we do to make sure that, I don't know, our, our candidates that do get a counter offer, that they probably will in, in today's market, don't accept it. I don't know, what are the things that you speak to your team about that can help other people, do you think? I would say you're absolutely right. In the current market, counter offers, they're, they're almost guaranteed to get one. If a company yeah. values them enough, they will make them a counter offer. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that it's so much easier for a company to keep someone that they already have than it is for them to start another recruitment process. Absolutely. For me, counter offer conversations start on their first qualification call. I think if you yeah. wait until second final offer stage of the process, it's too late because we need to be understanding from the candidate from the very, very first point of how they feel about a counter offer. Because in the first conversation, if we say to someone, look, it's a competitive market, I would suggest that your company will make you a counter offer. I'd be prepared for that to happen when you resign. What would a counter offer need to look like for you to stay with your current company? And mm -hmm. a lot of people are a little bit uncomfortable. They're like, oh no, I wouldn't accept one. I wouldn't accept one. But it's our job to then push back on that and say, are you telling me that if your current company offered you another 20 grand? Yeah, don't take on face value. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I'm really pushed on that. And I think if we can understand what a company needs to offer to keep someone, we can then advise our client as to, again, what are those yeah. little, the smaller drivers for someone that are making them happy in their company that they could then offer them to, to help entice them into their company. But it's just revisiting it to the point where like, I know candidates do get a bit annoyed and they're like, we've already discussed this. I've already <laughs> told you, I won't take a counter off. And I'm like, I know you have, but <laughs> let's just cover it again and make sure because you're only like protecting yourself and ultimately the candidate as well. The candidate doesn't know what we know about counter offers. For them, it yeah. just seems great. They've offered me more money. They've offered me a, a progression opportunity. That's exactly what I wanted. I'll stay. But they don't realize that I would say maybe as high as 70% of candidates that I know that took counter offers will come back to us in six to 12 months and ask for a new job because typically a counter offer is a plaster over a crack and yeah, yeah, it doesn't it actually kinda. solve the issues that they had and the reasons that mm. they were enticed to look somewhere else. Mm. Okay. So no, I like that. So basically advices for people right now is again, this may seem basic, but it's when you're busy and you're, again, we're just, you've got these live jobs that you know you want to fill. You've got a candidate that fits. Sometimes these are the things that can be forgotten about. And as Holly's mentioned, and we've all experienced it, there's not like you would rather ask the difficult questions, have the candidate go, you know what, Holly, actually maybe think, let me think about this further in that first initial call, rather than you getting them off earth throughout the whole process, not accepting it. And then you've got to do that call to the client saying, sorry, there. Do you know what I mean? This is this is the whole point. So I think, yeah, so talk about it throughout, even if you've already covered it, but it really comes down to that first conversation, talking about it from there. And as you said, don't like treat it as a tick box exercise where you go, oh, Holly, no, I've, I've asked them. They said they wouldn't actually dig deeper into that and go, what? No, generally you're telling me you wouldn't and push back on it as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think educating candidates as to what a counter offer really is, because if they've yeah. never experienced it before, to them, they're like, oh my God, amazing. I've got a 10 grand increase yeah. and I'll be a, a senior manager in, the same in job six potentially. months. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And they don't know what we see as recruiters, that we see so much of the industry that we know more about counter offers. I think it's about educating candidates and making sure that they go into that decision with all of the information available to them and just really understanding what they what they want. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let, let's take this into leadership then. I'm, I'm interested on like your sort of leadership journey just because I'm sure you've had conversations with people within BJ, but obviously it can be like a really difficult time for recruiters, right? Especially if, I don't know, they've, they've, they've been really high performers 
And then all of a sudden they've got to take care of or support, I don't know, two people, three people, their performance might dip and then it goes up again. So like, what have been some of the sort of biggest lessons for you so far in terms of like Holly being a leader and getting the best out of your team? Like what are some of the maybe one to three key things that you've learned so far? Probably number one for me, I started to become a better manager when I started to be myself as a manager and stop trying to be like the other managers in the business. I stopped trying to imitate them and started to understand, is this how I want to react to this situation? Is this what I think is right to do in this situation? And how would I respond to this? And I think having that more human element to how I was managing my team made them more responsive to me. I was a lot more open. I was Mm. a lot more honest with things. And I think they appreciated that rather than me Mm. blindly making a decision that I thought was right based on external factors and and kind of implementing it. And afterwards thinking, I'm not really sure why I did that. Was there maybe a decision that you made and then you're like, fuck, why why did I actually do that? And then you're like, you know what? I need to really start making decisions because they're the ones that I want to make rather than what I think people want me to make. Like, what was, was there a bit of a turning point? I wouldn't necessarily say there was a one turning point. I think my first yeah. year or so as a manager, I was so worried about being a great manager that I didn't trust my own instincts. And I thought, I'm just okay. going to do what I've been told is the right thing to do rather than doing what I thought was right in the situation and I think reflecting Mm. on that first year in management was really eye-opening for me to say this is what I want to be as a manager this is how I want my team to feel about me and then projecting that into the decisions that I was making I think from a management perspective as well something I guess that that I learned and that I I became better at was I guess having more of a personal relationship with the team okay so getting to know them, just getting to know them, spending, actually investing in time to, I guess, just peel back the layer a bit of like who these people are, who you're like a bit more than colleagues sort of thing. Yeah. And I think the more you get to know someone that's in your team, the better you can manage them. And I'm not saying mm. be best friends with them because yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a risky line. That's a difficult line to, to tread. But I think that understanding their background, where they come from, their motivations and their drivers will help you manage them more effectively because there are styles of management that one person in my team will respond really well to that someone else in my team will not respond well to. If you use me as an example, I was very, very self-critical and my manager quickly learned that there was nothing that they could say to me that was worse than what I'd already said to myself about anything that I'd messed up so they kind of adapted their management style to work around the fact that they knew that I was already being very very hard on myself and it was more about how do we make that productive and how do we use that self-analysis that I've given myself and put it into a productive way so that I can Mm. then move forwards and that was how they adapted their management style so that was important to me um and I think thirdly being female and being a leader I would argue Mm. is slightly more challenging And I know that might be a bit controversial for anyone that's listening that's male, but there's a really fine line. And I was often reminded that there is a really fine line between being assertive and being a bitch, excuse my language. And I was constantly being told, you're too nice, you're too nice, you're too nice. And then on the flip side, oh, you're coming across as a bitch. And it's like, it's so difficult to find that line in between because I feel like women are constantly judged yeah, hundred percent. Like that's what I mean. No, yeah, definitely, definitely. Like you wouldn't like the word that you only could come to just you like was bitch. But if if we were thinking of a guy that was acting the same, it probably wouldn't be a word like that, would it? It would just be like they're really direct or like yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So that was quite difficult for me, and I think the way that I overcame that was by just stop listening to what other people thought of of me, which okay. is really hard. And I'll be honest, I do still listen sometimes, but you just have to trust in yourself that you're making the decisions that you want to make. And as long as you stand by your decisions and you understand the reasons why you made them, yes, you're still going to make mistakes. You're never going to be the perfect manager. You're never going to be the perfect recruiter. But if you go into a decision knowing that you know the reasons why you've made the decision, then you can kind of, I guess, come back from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I've, I, thanks for being really honest. Like, 
Yeah, I think what I really love those questions that you said at the beginning of like, what what great questions to ask yourself as a manager, like, how do I want my team to feel um, about me? How, yeah, what do I want my team to look like and all those things? I think they're such great questions to ask yourself because that can then, like you said, that then filters into your decision making and then it'll, I guess, make it a bit easier to go, no, that is why I'm doing that because this is how I want my team to be and operate and what I want them to stand for and everything. And I think obviously sometimes those types of questions you may not make the time to think about because, yeah, you're a bidding manager, you're time poor, you're just like, why isn't Holly hitting her target? It's like, do, do you know what I mean? So it's, it just seems like you went on a real journey with that. I guess, did you have any, do you, I don't know, did you get any help or did you read anything that really helped? This podcast is proudly partnered with the award-winning Sourcebreaker. Again, I just want all of you to hear from recruitment leaders themselves or recruiters who use this fantastic product. So in this short snippet, you're going to hear from James Layton, who I've already had on the podcast, talk about how the delivery function of his recruitment business have been using Sourcebreaker for some time now, and it's been an absolute game changer for them. In short, it's just enabled them to save so much time on the candidate side, which I think all of us could agree with right now with how busy you are it's all about getting the most out of every single thing that you're doing so Sourcebreaker can absolutely help all of you get even more out of the time that you spend on the candidate side whilst actually saving you time so if you like what you hear honestly go and check out the Sourcebreaker tool it could be a fantastic fit for your business use the link in the show notes get a demo booked in and remember because you listen to this podcast you can get some exclusive savings on the product. If you like what you hear, go and check it out. And here's James. We use Sourcebreaker, which has been a game changer for our delivery function, so the outsource part of our business, because it just saves them hours and hours each day. I had a lot of help from the people around me. As I said earlier on, I really did grow up with Barrington James, in Barrington James. I think (laughs) if I look at myself when I joined versus who I am now, I'm a very, very different person. If you knew me six years ago, you you don't know me anymore. I'm completely different. I think a lot of that came from understanding who I was in Barrington James and how that then projected my own personality as well. I had a really, really great group of friends that I met at Barrington James that all had such impressive careers and that were all really, really strong in their own right, all in different divisions, all different parts of Barrington James. They all had a very different journey. But mm. having some, going through something like we were going through together was really good for us because it meant that we really understood how each other were feeling, that we could give them the best advice and really motivate. Nice. It wasn't just about my friends, like my managers, my leaders, the people at Barrington James really helped me on that journey. I, I don't know if this is the same for other companies, but... I could go and speak to pretty much anyone on our board about anything mm. and they all wanted to help and it was obvious that they wanted to help. There was never a point That's where great. I went to go and speak to someone where I felt like they were like, oh, for God's sake, another question, Holly, kind of like, I'm not, I'm busy, go yeah. away. There was, they would always make time for us and that was so important. And yeah, I think just having really strong like role models and, and people around you that will support where you're going and what you're doing was was important for me yeah so like you're really proactive yeah okay yeah again I think hopefully if people listen to this they they have that sort of mindset like willing to get help ask for help be curious and I think a lot of the things hopefully if you're in a company where there are other managers or there'd be directors that would have probably experienced some of the similar things you're that you're experiencing if you listen to this and you are a manager and, and those types of things so that that makes sense I guess so just to sort of wrap this up then, like if you were to start your leadership journey again, a lot of people listening to this will probably aspire to be, to progress, want to be into, in a management role potentially, like what would you do differently maybe if you were to start it again from the start out of interest? That is a really good question. I think that I would put more trust in myself as a role model for my team around me. I think when I at the beginning of my 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 leadership journey when i had less self confidence less self belief i think a part of my head was saying why would they why would they model yourself on on you 
when actually mm. what I had done by that point was enough for them to want to model themselves on. And I just needed to believe that the journey that I'd had was enough for them to follow me as a leader, if that makes sense. And just ask for help. I was so worried about being the perfect manager that I was like, I can't ask these questions because they'd be like, why don't you know how to do that already? Or why, yeah. why aren't you doing that already? When actually when you put that aside and just think, I'm going to ask someone that has three years more experience in management to me. Of course, what they're doing is going to be like educational, even if it's the same as what I'm doing. They might do it in a slightly different way or they might have done it slightly more times to know what kind of responses they're going to get, what kind of impact it's going to have. So I think just being open with the challenges that you're facing and speaking to people about it in quite an open dialogue is really important. Yeah, no, awesome. So still sort of, sort of leadership that we're talking about, but just a really specific one, because I know a lot of people struggle with this. So as we were saying before we start recording this, obviously you're supporting your team, but you, you've you also got your own billings that you're obviously taking charge of and all that. So what um, people all are always interested, Holly, into like people's like day plans and like how they structure things. I mean, as a recruiter, it's hard, but let alone you've got seven people responsible for, and you've got a number that you've got to hit. What does a typical day for Holly look like? How do you structure your day to make sure that you've got time for your own stuff that you know that you need to do, but then you're also available to support the team out of interest? It all comes down to time management and organization and just being really strict with your time. As you said, there's seven people in the team and the chances are that throughout the morning, they're probably going to have at least one question each. And if they take 10 minutes each, you're looking at over an hour of your time that's spent just dealing with questions from the team. So when I first get in in the morning, I usually get in at about half seven. I'll check all my emails from the night before. I'll check what I've got scheduled for that day. I'll write out a to-do list, prioritize based on what needs to be ticked off first. And then when the team get in, I'll do a quick roundup of what their plan is, what their focus is going to be for the day. I'll leave them for maybe like 15, 20 minutes just to get themselves set up and make sure that they know exactly what they're doing for the day. And then we'll do goals. And within the goals, challenge them on, okay, so you want to get four match CVs today, for example, where are they going to come from? What calls have you got booked in to do that? What roles are you covering off? That kind of thing. And I find that if you know enough during the goal setup, then it can make you more effective during the day as to tracking their progress and knowing what what they're focusing on. Between nine and 12, typically, as long as there's not too many questions, that's my own time to focus on my desk. So okay. I split my day BD and candidates. I do have a resource there. So usually my day is, is slightly more focused on BD than it is on candidates. And that will be a mixture of catch up calls with clients that I currently work with or have worked sure. with previously, colder BD sessions, uh, following up on leads, specking into new clients, that kind of thing. And then between 12 and one, as long as their question wasn't so urgent that they were going to fall off their chair, that's typically when I would go through and just check where we are with everything, make sure that... Yeah the team are on track and answer any questions that they have between one and two is lunch and then from two till 4 30 ish again that's focused on on my own stuff um, and yeah. again there'll be calls that i'll be doing with the team so debriefs on the calls i've had with them and feedback and stuff like that throughout but typically i'll try and focus that on my own stuff and then from 4 30 till 5 30 again roundup of the day making sure that i'm answering the questions that they need me to and, and helping to direct it then we'd be putting a plan in place for the next day to make sure that if they're doing prep between that time, the they're prepping the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and then after that, it's just getting back onto my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and I know there will be days that that just goes out the window. Some sites. So, do you know what I mean? But I think the fact that you just reeled that off, what I love about that, which I don't think I've heard before, is you do obviously typically hear like obviously stand up in the in the morning, what are your goals? But what I really like is what you said. Not like test people, but it's easy for me to I would walk in and go, right, Holly, my goal today is to get five CVs and then that might be it. But and then you're going, Okay, okay, Hisham, great. How are you gonna do that? Because then that's going to get them thinking even more about their day plans, what they need to prioritise, how they're going to do it. And as you said, that can then help you when you're obviously finding out how they're getting on, what they need help with as well. So I really like that. And then the bit of the day as well to think about planning the next day. I think that that's probably the best time management tip I always give is like plan your day before it even starts. Like that is, there's nothing worse than walking into the office going, right, what the fuck am I doing today basically? Do you know what I mean? There's nothing more worse than that feeling. So, okay, 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's, that's, that's brilliant. I know that'll help people. So just out of interest, this is typically a question that I ask like agency leaders and stuff, but you'll, you'll be the person I actually use them. Like out of interest, are there any like thinking of you being a manager and what your team uses and stuff like that? Is there any like tools or like pieces of tech that you now use every day that you just maybe couldn't live without out of interest? Definitely. We've actually come on a really long way in terms of the technology that we use since I started. Um, when we started, it okay. was very much like a database a standard LinkedIn profile and phone, and that was it. We now have access to Sourcebreaker, which is fantastic for business development and for candidate searching as well. We've updated our database to VinCherry, which has loads of features which help us really fine tune like candidate searching and basically be more effective um, when it comes to identifying profiles that we already have in our database. Yeah. Um, and we also upgraded to LinkedIn Recruiter. So everyone has okay. a LinkedIn Recruiter profile, which means that we can save projects and, and manage, yeah. I would so, say, the processes, yeah. the candidates, the, the, the talent pools a lot more effectively. So those are the main three that we use at the moment that I think are most effective that's changed since when I joined. Really nice. What um, source breaker, how does that actually, what is so great about that in practice? The way that I use Sourcebreaker to my advantage is, is predominantly on, on the BD side because what it can pull through based on like a Boolean search are a load of job leads that I wouldn't get mm. from just looking on LinkedIn, for example. Or would it take you like million years to find it, like go through them or win it? So as long as you've got a good Boolean on there, it pulls through a, a good amount of results mm. that are quite accurate and then you can save them to a pipeline actually on Sourcebreaker so it's a good tracking see it in one place. technique as well yeah you can see it in one place you can move it for the process and you can keep mm. a really good log of what you've done what you need to do and it almost like just centralizes all of the information rather than having a spreadsheet a LinkedIn open yeah, yeah, yeah. written it down on your paper it just brings it all together which makes it a lot more organized yeah nice love that so before we finish then just interested to hear because obviously we said at the beginning like as you said obviously recruitment is really hard it can be up and down like what what's been what's been your journey with like holly not being too high the highs or not being too low the lows like what's been your journey of your mindset out of interest like how have you got better at having more good days and bad days i think there are a lot of different factors that help me manage it going up and down i think planning and preparation is so important in recruitment and just being really super organized I thought that I was really organized before I joined Barrington James. And then as my career went on, I realized that actually there was so much more that I could do in organization <laughs> that would make me more effective. So having a really strong plan, not necessarily a, a, a day plan, although that is important, but a plan for your months, a plan for your quarter, a plan for your year, and really yeah. understanding the milestones that you need to reach to break down what you're doing. And I always find that breaking a big task down into smaller tasks helps me achieve it a lot better. So that's why I break the year down into a lot smaller chunks. And then I'll manage my time based on what I need to achieve within those chunks as well. I think as well as that is having people around you that you can talk to about it. I think knowing that you're not alone in the super low part of your week, month, year is really helpful. And you can understand how someone else got through it and, and what they did and how that affected them and, and how that can, you can then use that yeah. to your advantage to help you as well. That was really important. And I think that's important for everyone to have like an open sounding board. And I like to try and be that for my team as well. Whenever I have someone new join, I always say to them, at some point in the next three months, you are going to go home and you are going to go, fuck this, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> this is so awful, I hate it. And I'm like, come and tell me about it. We'll have a chat about it and we'll laugh about it because I promise you in six months time, you'll look back on it and you'll yeah. laugh because everyone does it. And I think knowing that when you come in is so yeah. important that it's not, everyone is going to feel like that at some point. Yeah, love that. So look, final um, question I have for you typical story that you hear about people going into recruitment is it's an accident fell into the industry blah 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 but I think hopefully you'd agree that like what it's sort of enabled Holly to do in her life and you as a person is such a positive thing and I think why isn't that more of a choice rather than it always being an accident right so just just question for you really is basically like why do you feel recruitment should be more of a career choice than an accident from from your opinion yeah, it's a really good point, actually. And, and you're absolutely right in what you say. I also fell into recruitment. It was not something that I even really knew about before I joined the industry. But I would completely agree that as a, as a career option, it should be highlighted to people. Because the unique thing about recruitment is that anyone could do it. And I know that sounds 
really maybe stupid, but we have people coming from such diverse backgrounds. Mm. One of our top billers used to work at a garden center. Like I used mm. to work in retail. There's so many, such a variety of different backgrounds. Some have degrees, some don't have degrees, some are parents, some aren't parents. There's just such a diversity yeah. across the type of person that can do this job that I think it is important that it's highlighted. And I hope that by maybe going out to, to universities and, and, and getting more graduates and then spreading awareness of what we do, I hope that we can get people into it. Because for me personally, the stuff that I have achieved outside of work, I never would have thought I would have. And I mentioned earlier on that I grew up with Barrington James, but I really did inside and outside of work. I bought my first house last year, drive a car that I've always wanted to drive since I was little. Um, And I guess I did think I was going to be able to do it, but I didn't think I'd be able to do it as quickly as I did it. Yeah. Yeah. So like if I was to speak to Holly when you're in retail, like this is sort of what your life might look like or what you might be able to go out and obviously invest for yourself. You might have laughed at me. Yeah, pretty much. And it's, it's funny because when I was younger, I went out with my auntie at the time and I must have been like maybe 10 and I was like, oh, I love Range Rovers. I'm so obsessed with Range Rovers. I'm going to have a Range Rover. And she was like, come on, Holly, you're not going to have a Range Rover. Not in a horrible way, like not malicious, yeah, yeah. but I think she was just being realistic that the chances are I probably wouldn't have a Range Rover. And mm. so when I got it, I drove up to her house. It took me three and a half hours. She lives miles away. And I parked it on the drive and I was like, I told you. But in my head, when I said that, I was thinking I'd probably be maybe late thirties that yeah. I would get to that point in my career when I could do that. And, and I did it much quicker. So yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's interesting when you think about those kinds of things and, and the time frames that you're able to achieve what you're able to achieve. But I definitely didn't think that at the age that I'm at, I would have the career that I have. Yeah. Good on you. Awesome. Look, Holly, it's been an absolute pleasure. Excited to see where you're on another five, six years. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? If you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the recruitment mentors podcast